morning, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to the book of Daniel. This morning we'll be studying Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I do bring greetings from the elders and congregation of Cross Point Church in Clemson, South Carolina. Uh, I do uh, share in, uh, the great joy of our partnership together as we've uh, had a years-long relationship with Pastor Alex and Jenna and a joy of supporting uh, the planting of Emmanuel here in Winston-Salem financially and, and through our prayers and, and partnership, and, and likewise through the Pillar Network. What a joy that we do not labor alone. Instead of reading our scripture up, up front because of the length of this narrative account, this morning I'll be reading it as we walk through it along the way. But what we do see here this morning in Daniel chapter 3 may be quite a familiar account to many in this room. It's of three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a power-hungry king, Nebuchadnezzar, and a fiery furnace. This distant familiarity you may have with this story, maybe perhaps from a children's book, is anything but childish. We see in the context here in Daniel chapter 3, God's people, though they had dwelled under uh, under the kings in the promised land of Israel, rejected the Lord God as their king. And as God had promised, he was true to his word that he would discipline and lead his people into exile at the hand of their enemy. The Babylonians came and they sacked uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the people of Israel were taken into exile where in the land of Babylon, uh, today in modern-day Iraq, they dwelled under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 1 of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar's effort to assimilate the best and the finest of the young men of the, of the Jewish people into the ways and the customs of Babylon. We see in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in his dream, he doesn't reveal what it is, but he demands for the wise men of his land to interpret it, of which there was not found one who could interpret this dream when Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even tell them what the dream was about. But yet God shows his sovereign power when not only does he reveal the dream to Daniel, but he reveals the meaning. And in this dream, which is significant as we look to chapter 3, this dream depicts a great statue of a man, of a king or of a ruler, and of the image, uh, he had a head of, of gold. And then the next segment of his body was, was silver. And then its legs were bronze and feet of iron and clay. And Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar, this is a sure word from God. The, the golden head represents you and your reign and your rule. But the different materials represent other kingdoms that are to come after the kingdom of Babylon. And that sets us up today for chapter 3. But through and through, the book of Daniel is quite relevant for Christians today because it depicts God's people living as aliens, as sojourners, as strangers in a foreign land. And it shows us not only is God the sovereign ruler over all kings, and over all nations, but God's people have, will, and will continue to live 
in a resistance of joining in with the ways of this world to allegiance to the national dictates and to continue to ascribe its final allegiance above all to Yahweh, to the Lord God. And we find that we relate to that theme even today. So would you pray with me now as we look to God's word. Our Father, we do give you our praise and we thank you for this occasion on this Lord's Day to gather under your word. We pray now you would speak to us as we consider this account of these three young men and of their resistance and their quest to remain faithful to you amidst coercion and amidst pressure and amidst persecution. By your spirit, would you soften our hearts to receive your word with meekness. In Jesus' name, amen. Its words are among the most familiar in all of American culture. The psalm's words have been depicted in both classical and modern music. From Bach to the Moody Blues. From Franz Schubert to Bobby McFerrin to Pink Floyd, Megadeth, Coolio, and and of course, you too. I'm speaking of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 provides us comfort as we've already experienced today. Comfort of the Lord as our shepherd. And I remind you as we read a moment ago in our reading together, in verse 4, in the middle of Psalm 23, we're reminded that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. God promises his presence with his people in the face of death. That's why this is the psalm so often employed in funerals, in the valley of the shadow of death, in the face of our fiercest grief and longing for restoration. We look to this psalm because of the promise of God's presence with us. This theme of God's presence with his people we can pick up and trace throughout the scripture. In fact, that's what was so glorious in the Garden of Eden. It was that God walked with Adam and Eve. And that's what was so grievous of the sin. Adam and Eve were cast out from the garden, yes, but they were cast even worse from the very intimate face-to-face presence with God. And that's why we long for his presence. And as you all have even been studying in John chapter 14 and chapter 15, Jesus' promise of his presence, of the comforter, the Holy Spirit with his people. Until finally on that day of restoration, once again we will be with God in the fullness of his glory. God's presence with his people we see throughout the scripture. Well, in Daniel chapter 3, this is a narrative account, but yet it is teaching us quite similarly. Amidst the fiery trials of life, God promises his presence with you and with I. God promises his presence with his people amidst the fiery trials 
of life. I'd like to break this in two points today. Point one, trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Why is that? Well, it fundamentally, it's because of mankind's rebellion against God's rule. If you'll look with me here into Daniel chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Here, Paul's with me, the very beginning of this account. Immediately after this dream of an image of a statue, King Nebuchadnezzar goes about and sets up some image. Uh, over a hundred feet tall, this would be a a, a domineering image or statue amongst the people there. And it's not specified exactly what this image was, but kings in the ancient Near East would commonly place images of themselves, of statues around the land, around their territory as an exercise of their dominion and often even their deity, their claims for deity over the land. This was an imposing image, man-made, with the appearance of gold. It seemed to be glorious. Well, here Nebuchadnezzar is violating the very first two of the Ten Commandments, that we should have no other gods before the Lord our God, and we should not uh, create for ourselves any graven images. We see him rebelling against the very created purpose for which mankind has been created, underneath the true sovereign that God has created us, mankind, as his image. As we read in Genesis chapter 1, in his image, he created them, in the very image of God. But we have seen in Genesis chapter 11 that man has rebelled against this uh, image-bearing and God's mandate to be fruitful and spread throughout the world uh, fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But in Genesis 11, man's rebellion was depicted by building a great tower uh, in the Tower of Babel, perhaps on this very same plain of Dura, where some hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, mankind created uh, an image or a, a, a place for man's own glory that they would never be forgotten. Perhaps the very same place to make a name for themselves. Nebuchadnezzar has a goal. Political and religious unification of this great kingdom, the greatest kingdom of all the earth. That others would know of his greatness, would worship him and know of his accomplishments as the great king of Babylon. When man's rebellion against God's rule is coupled with power, we see systemic societal sin that follows. And man's rebellion against God leads to imposing uh, our values and agendas upon others through pressure, through coercion, and through persecution. And that's what we see here. Another evidence of these trials are not only because our rebellion against God's rule, but this rebellion leads to pressure, coercion, and persecution of others. Look here in verses 2 through 14. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I'm out of breath. And yes, as I believe Daniel, who wrote this some years later, is perhaps intending that there would be some sense of humor as he perhaps satirizes Nebuchadnezzar's effort of this great act of pompousness, of his great worth, calling forth all of these various officials to come to pay homage to this image. And you notice the word repeated again and again that he has set up. Continue with me in verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Not only is it all of the officials, but it's all the instruments. Nebuchadnezzar is declaring his supremacy over all. He's seeking to extol his sovereignty over this land, and in fact, over the world. But it's worth reminding ourselves as Christians today, friends, that Jesus isn't the only ruler who has evangelists. For another word for evangelist is the word herald. A herald is one who announces news on behalf of another. Did you notice the word here that his her Nebuchadnezzar's herald in verse 4 proclaimed aloud? Did you know Satan has his evangelists too? Yet the gospel of this world, of rulers of this age, is so different from the gospel that we are called to herald. Do you see the difference? This herald of Nebuchadnezzar heralds this command. And he coerces all that you must bow to this image of gold. And if you do not, we will persecute you for your disobedience. Religion and the rule of this world preaches a very devious, twisted, and destructive gospel. We set gods up. They consume from us. They punish disobedience. But friends, this is not the gospel of God. This is not our gospel. For our gospel is not worshiping a God who has been set up by humanity, but he descended down among us, Emmanuel, God with us. 
He needs nothing from us, but gave himself up for us. It's the difference between do and done. The religion of this world demands performance, but the gospel of Christ tells us the performance has been done. The work has been finished, that Christ has completed the final act of righteousness for those like us who could not do it. Continuing to verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These Chaldeans perhaps were classmates in the school of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 with these three young Hebrew men. Perhaps now not much older than college students, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego may be. In their young 20s, their young professional career, they've been deeply blessed by Yahweh, as you recall from chapter 1, that the king fleeted them. They stood out among the crowd even then, and they've been given offices under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. These callous Jealous Chaldeans now perhaps jealous over status and power of these three friends' uh, blessing uh, underneath Nebuchadnezzar. Their faithfulness, their unwillingness to go with the way of the world made them stand out, made them objects easily to be targeted. And here we see objects to be coerced. It's worth observing, friends, walking with God makes one to stand out in the rule and administration of this world. When we walk under God's authority, we will stand out, and it makes you a target. When the world says yes, and as a follower of Jesus, we must say no, you will stand out. As followers of Jesus, I wonder if the way we function, students, in our classes, in schools, among our peers, or at work, or on the athletic field, I wonder if the way we operate, are we completely blending into the way of this world? Or if in our integrity, our work ethic, our, uh, our, our ethics, our trustworthiness, our faithfulness, our seeking to be skillful in what we do, Are we standing out even when we face pressure, coercion, or persecution? Continuing to verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar 
in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Now, before we give Nebuchadnezzar too difficult of a time, we we must pause and ask the question, might I have some Nebuchadnezzar within my heart? We would do well to ponder and consider our own inner Nebuchadnezzars. For we must recognize we all have set ourselves up as rulers against God's rule. All conflict and trials in our lives is rooted fundamentally in our rebellion against God's rule over our lives. As we've already grieved and confessed earlier in our prayer together. Friends, there is no hope for you and for I in this passage today until we first identify ourselves with the prideful, coercive ruler of this world. We must see that like Nebuchadnezzar, we seek to be made much of. We seek to be remembered, to be renowned, and to be obeyed. And this self-seeking quest for power, for wealth, for fame, inevitably leads to attacking those who get in our way, hence the word conflict. We attack because someone is in the way of what I want. Parents, when we become angry at our children, is it not fundamentally that they've crossed your sovereign domain of your rule for peace and quiet and order or structure or accomplishing whatever that is before you when we snap in impatience or frustration towards a child? Is it not our self-rule and domain behind that sin? Students, is there a time you've been left out by your friends. I can remember numerous occasions that feeling of not feeling wanted, not feeling included by those whom I valued their approval so deeply. You may find yourself in that time angry or hurt, but is it not behind all of that? It's a sinful view of myself. I'm thinking too much of me when I feel that way towards others. We all set ourselves up as many, M-I-N-I, many lords, as rulers. And we desire for our name to be magnified, which is behind every hurtful practice towards others. Husbands and wives, our angry words, our friends, our jealousy. We must face our prideful inner Nebuchadnezzar. To receive hope and grace through this text for us today. Trials are inevitable, friends. But secondly, I would like to observe in this text today, God will deliver. God will deliver. He delivers first by giving us grace to stand. We'll see this in verses 15 through 23. Grace to stand. Look back at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, 
Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Nebuchadnezzar showing them some grace here, isn't he? Second chance, right? But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? That's worth underlining right there. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? You see Nebuchadnezzar's esteem, his boasting, his, his claim for deity, his sovereign power. But these three men found themselves in the same predicament as millions of people, past and present, who refused to conform their faith and practice to the the demands and the claims of the way of this world. And in many ways, the three young men also represent all people who find a painful affliction falling upon them, unlooked for, unexpected, through no fault of their own. There will always be pressure to conform to the earthly rule and the powers of of man. We live in an age where man's rule and authority is increasingly unmoored from a recognition of God's rule here in America. And we face more and more pressure to compartmentalize our faith to keep it in this room, to keep it out of the public square, to keep it away from our businesses or our places of work or our responsibilities in society. Resistance to this pressure that we face as followers of Christ will result in discomfort, at least, if not dismissal by others, perhaps adversity, or even persecution. Many of you see this personally and are experiencing this in your day-to-day realities, are you not? Christians are being pressured to be silent. Christians are being coerced to not allow their allegiance to God to be the supreme allegiance in their lives. Friends, the current trajectory in our own land points only to more and more hostility in years to come. And it may be that persecution, the very persecution our founding fathers fled, will become the way of life in our own nation. But we have a privilege in the church. We have a grace in the church, just as Shadrach was not alone, was he? He was not alone. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be alone amidst uh, a coercive culture. We stand together. But also, even as we prayed a moment ago, it would be a a betrayal of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world that are right now living in places of oppression and persecution if we didn't remember them, even in this moment, living under regimes of hostility, severe persecution, and not be grateful as well for our freedom to assemble even today. But Christians are being systematically hunted and killed at at rates unlike 
history has never seen before. May God be gracious to allow us to continue to pray for those under such persecution. Continuing to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Friends, here is the, the first miracle. I know we're, 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 we, you, you probably know the end of the story, but before we get to that, perhaps the first miracle is seen right here. God promises grace to stand amidst the oppressor. Grace to stand. The miracle didn't happen in the furnace, but before they ever were cast into it. God got them ready to face the fire. True faith makes the human heart fearless, yet humble. They had been spiritually fireproofed before they were physically fireproofed. Don't let the optimistic outcome of this story cloud your vision. The friends here have no confidence that they are going to survive this ordeal. They do not know exactly how God intends to bring about their rescue. They trust God's sovereign power they know God's sovereign purposes, but they do not know God's sovereign plan on how exactly this is going to work out. But they trust him. They trust his good purposes. And it may have been even through death that God would deliver them. But these brothers, as you would see in chapter 12, they knew that God is a God of the resurrection of the dead. Their trust and their obedience was not determined by their desired outcome. Their trust and their obedience was not uh, subject to what they wanted to happen. It was simply knowing their God. It was because, as we saw in chapter 1, these young men walked with God. For years, they had trusted God. They'd already faced adversity. They'd already faced oppression and pressure and coercion. And they'd already seen God's faithfulness. It's so important, friends. We don't prepare for the fiery trials of life when we face the fiery trial. We must be preparing today. For tomorrow the trials are inevitable. And yet, I know there are trials happening even now in this room. Their grace to stand given to them, and their standing was based on God's character. 
but if not. It was not based on what they wanted to happen, but they knew God's purposes. Look again at verse 19 as we continue forward. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Even when the pressure to submit and conform leads to conflict and great trials, Friends, we can trust God who is faithful to deliver his people. He gives us grace to stand through the fiery trials of life, but also he gives grace to walk amidst the fiery trials of life. Grace to walk here in verses 24 to 30. So Nebuchadnezzar's mightiest of men were killed only simply being near this fiery furnace. And it's this picture of these three men, as these strong men were, were killed, they dropped the three friends, the worst friends of God, and they tumbled down into this fiery furnace. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Wow. Are you ready? Look, look here at what is happening. Even through the flames, there is something that astonishes Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems to be here that not only were these three men not bound and walking, but there is the presence of a fourth of such majesty and glory as though one of the sons of the gods. He's recognizing some sort of, of, of uh, supernatural nature about this fourth person walking in the fire. And we notice that this fourth person does not come out with the other three. Who was this fourth person in the fire? Well, it, we, some would see this as a prefiguring of Christ. It's, it's probably the angel of the Lord, a figure that we see throughout many other places in the Old Testament. But regardless, this fourth figure is very plainly an example of fulfilling of what God promises throughout a scripture, like Isaiah 43, verse 1. Listen to this passage. Fear not, 
for I have redeemed thee. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Is this not exactly what God is teaching us here through this narrative account? As we read in Psalm 23, 4, as we see in Isaiah, as we see in John 14, God promises his presence with his people amidst the fiery trial. And do you see the infinite lengths to which he has gone to be with you and with I? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were good men, but do you know they were still flawed men? They were not perfect men. These three did not deserve the Lord's deliverance because of their righteousness, because of their perfect purity, because they were not perfect in purity. But at the birth of Jesus Christ, God, the Son, came with to be with us in our finite, weak humanity. And all of Jesus' life was under stress, often attacked by people seeking to kill him, constantly misunderstood and rejected by his own people. But it was supremely at the end of Jesus' earthly life on the cross when he truly entered our furnace. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus was condemned unjustly to a painful death under a totalitarian regime. But when it came time for Jesus to enter the furnace of affliction, there was no one to walk through the furnace beside him. For he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured the fire of the righteous wrath of God alone so that God could be with you and with me through the fire. This is a metaphor that means Jesus knows what it's like to live through the miseries of this world. He understands and he is near. He's available to be known to be depended upon through the hardships of life. He walks with us. And the question is, will we walk with him? If we've created a false God of my program, a, a, a prosperity gospel God, then when our lives fall apart, we simply assume God's favor is not upon me. God's blessing is not with me. God's abandoned me. And we lash out and we rebel against God, if that's the God of our creation. But as John Rippon wrote in the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, uh, repackaging God's promises of Scripture to us, we read, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Indeed, God's promise of his presence amidst the fiery trials. Let's continue to verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the fiery furnace 
he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Pause right there. Here is a picture of perfect deliverance. If you've ever been camping or you've ever done s'mores around a bonfire, you know as well as I do, even days later, that flannel shirt that you had on continues to reek, continues to smell of smoke, even if you're not close to the flame. Daniel goes to great lengths to show this perfect deliverance cast into the furnace, heated seven times over, not even a hair was singed. There was not even a whiff of smoke upon these three friends, these three uh, lovers of God. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't protect his mighty men near the flame, yet God protected and redeemed his weakened and bound men and gave them grace to walk through the fire. And let's read the conclusion. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. Notice he's moving away from fire now. We're just going to destroy their houses. We will tear them limb to limb. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Earlier I mentioned there's no hope for us if we don't first identify with Nebuchadnezzar. Is that right? Well, let's look one more time at Nebuchadnezzar here before we conclude. Again, an astonishing picture of perfect deliverance. But you observe Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to this. He watches Yahweh God deliver these three men and even see a fourth man like a son of the gods with them. It says he's astonished. But then do you see here, he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's some aspect where Nebuchadnezzar says, blessed be their God. He knows about their God, but it continues to be those guys. God. Nebuchadnezzar is familiar with God, familiar with his works, but yet still has this distant relationship, this distance from God. And look at what it says of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says that they trusted in him in verse 28, trusted in him. Now I ask you, what do you do with this account? And this is our final call. 
Would we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be men, be women, be boys, and be girls who trust in God, who trust in him? Now, we may say, oh, I trust him. Oh, I do. But trust is not what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's not trusting in God. Look at what trusting in God is. It involves knowledge, assent, and actual trust. You know about him. You agree it's true, the work of Christ, and we place our confidence wholly on him. That's what these guys did. They trusted in him. They set aside the king's command and they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Friends, that is a picture of faith. Simple, saving faith looks like this. It's a a willingness of turning from our ways. It's a willingness to say no when the world says yes. It's a confidence in a God who delivers us through the fiery trials. But also, friends, as we consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, if you're like me, you may ponder this and say, man, I... What would I do if I were in their situation? I don't know that I could have stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know that I could have withstood this coercion and this persecution and allowed them to bind me and cast me into the fiery furnace. Well, friends, do you know that you don't need grace to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and to be cast in the fiery furnace today? You know, you and I don't need grace to do that. You and I, by God's grace, need his grace to stand in our situations. You see, our our Nebuchadnezzar is not this king, but it's the ways and the ages of this world. And the good news of this text, through fiery trials, God promises grace for you to stand amidst coercion, amidst pressure. And he promises for grace for you and I to walk through the trials that you and I will encounter. We don't need grace for other struggles, but God promises to give you grace for where you will be today and the trials you will walk through tomorrow. So would God be pleased to strengthen our faith to trust him and to walk by this grace through the fiery trials that we would endure. You can trust God who is faithful to be with you and to deliver you through the fiery trials of life. Would you bow and pray with me?